Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, a few things that are, uh, I don't know, maybe potentially hard to talk about, but I'm going to start with a word that we use, that's used, I guess, in the church. Uh, a word that's not um, very favorable, and uh, it's used sometimes in religious contexts. Um, it's really not part of the gospel. I mean, it, it is part of the gospel. It's not really supposed to be part of the church. It's what Jesus really came to, to defeat when he came, but we still use it. And when I say it, you might feel a little icky or something when I say it, but just feel that feeling. The word is this. It's condemnation. Condemnation. How many of you guys love feeling condemnation? Probably none of us, right? We don't like it. We don't want to be condemned. But sometimes the church, people object to coming to the church because they feel condemnation. They feel this, this sense that, oh, I'm going to come and I'm just going to be condemned. They're just going to condemn me. But Jesus didn't come for that purpose. And the church is not, should not be a, a word that, that kind of defines our church or any church, really. There's another word, though, that kind of goes along the same lines, which will come out today, is, is self-righteousness. Being self-righteous. Another word we don't like. We don't like in our, in our own lives. We don't like around us. But we see it from time to time. We see it in the church. Today we're looking at a very a beloved passage. One that you've, you've probably heard, you've seen it, you've, you've read it before. That speaks into these things. It speaks about condemnation. It talks about being self-righteous. And it talks really about grace and truth. Why Jesus came to confront the condemnation, to confront it with grace in truth. It's found in John chapter 8. It's known as the woman who is caught in adultery. Before I get to that though, like, like what's happening here? Just real quick, real quick summary. If you just flip back to the beginning of chapter 7, you just, you read a little bit, you see this phrase in here that the Jews were trying to kill Jesus. Okay? The Jews are trying to kill Jesus. Um, that's a pretty strong statement. And already here in the seventh chapter of John, there's already this desire for the Jewish leaders to, to be done with, with Jesus. Why did they want him gone? One, because he was not very nice to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees. He was making it very hard to be a Pharisee. Pharisees up till this point, they were, they were the ones who set the pace when it comes to religious things. When it comes to righteousness, they were setting the pace. But Jesus came and he kind of poked his finger at them. Right, So many times he made it hard to be a Pharisee. But the other reason is he made it very easy to be a sinner. Right? To be a sinner. He was called a friend of sinners. He would meet sinners and he would love on them. He would care for them. He would have dinner with them. He would forgive them. And so because of all of this, they did not like having Jesus around and they wanted him gone. All this is setting up the beginning of chapter 8. We're in a series called Encountering Jesus, where we are looking at where Jesus encountered different people. We're not looking so much at the teaching aspects, which are before and, and after this, but we're looking at just these personal encounters. When Jesus comes face to face with people and how he responds with them. Today you see him interacting with two sorts of people. The religious Pharisees, there's a number of them, and we'll, we'll interact with that. We see how he interacts with them and, and uh, encounters them. But we'll also see how he interacts with this lady. 
this lady who is standing before him and before a crowd who is caught in the act of adultery and how he responds to her. Now, before we get in there, before we get into the preaching aspect, i got to just do a little pause and take you back to school. All right? We're going to talk a little bit about textual criticism. Right? Um, I don't do this often, but uh, it doesn't come up a lot, but every now and then it comes up. And if you look at your Bible, if you have a Bible and you look at this passage, if you look at the beginning of chapter 8, you might see a bracket from there to verse 11. There's little brackets. And what those brackets are, there's a little footnote probably in there in your Bible. And if you looked at it closely, it may say something like this, that this passage is not in the earliest manuscripts. Okay? This, this chapter, these, this the story that we'll talk about, is not in some of the earliest manuscripts. So here's the kind of going back to school. If you were in Bible school, if you're, you know, uh, have that as part of your history, you'll remember going back to your Bible classes. You probably talked about this. But um, real quick, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to take a semester of material and put it down in about two minutes, okay? Uh, Here's what it is. Textual criticism is a science of, like, knowing, like, what is in the Bible, right? Making sure that that's what it is. We don't have any of the original manuscripts, Like, John's original letter that he wrote, we don't have, okay? We don't have that for any New Testament. So, how do we know that this is God's Word? Well, we have copies of it. From uh, from the very beginning, the first copies are like 200, 380 to 1500 when the printing press was finally operational. All the, any book, not just the Bible, any book, if there was copies of it, it was handwritten, and when you handwrite that, and so many times, there's, there's little errors that come up, right? We call it little variants. Just like when you're typing an email, and instead of the, you write them, you know, on accident or things like that. There's a lot of those, okay? But we have so many copies. We're able to take those and look at it and compare and contrast and see the language and the dating and the location where it is so that we can say that we have uh, with, with great confidence that this is the Word of God. But there's a passage like this, which isn't in the original, or not the original, it wasn't in the early copies, they were in some later copies. And so a lot of, a lot of uh, conservative theologians and uh, commentators would say this, we're pretty sure this wasn't in John's original writing, but we're also pretty sure that this really happened. Remember John, at the end of his book, he says, you know, and Jesus did so much more that wasn't captured in this book. If, he said, if I had all the books in the world, that, you know, that still couldn't capture all the things that Jesus did. And so this is probably one of those things. So we look at it, and we just got to say, does it change any of the theology? Is there anything in here that is not consistent with God's word? And it's, there's not. Everything in here is consistent with what Jesus was teaching and all that. And so we're going to look at this passage and um, we're going to see what God has to say. But that, that's our schoolwork, okay? So that's textual criticism. I just want to let you know that. Um, but we can, we can have authority knowing this is God's word. Let me just say this last thing too, because um, some of you, maybe you had these intro to religion classes when you're in college, or maybe our, some of our students will be in there. And you guys know the stories, right? That professor, the intro to um, religion, he's going to tell you that this Bible that you have, you can't trust it. It's too many errors. You know, it's, it's not the original and all that. And they really shoot it down. And, and we were talking with our staff this week about like the game Telephone. Remember that 
that game you play as a kid and somebody says something, you know, here and then they, they pass it, they whisper it all the way down the line and it, you know, goes to the last person that doesn't have anything to do like this. Um, uh, Shohei Otani deserves to win the MVP, okay? And you tell that, you tell that a few different places and then, you know, you get to the end and they say, show me the hay outside and win a bowl of peas, you know? <laughs> Something like that. And, and it's just, you're just like, that doesn't have anything to do with it. And, and that's what will happen in the intro to religion classes. Like, they're just like, this is a bowl of peas. It's not even the original. That's how it's been taught, and that's what we're told. And so many of us believe that. But maybe a better definition that, um, that we can look at is like Wikipedia. You know, Wikipedia is a crowdsourced online gathering. It's an encyclopedia where, you know, not everything is true in there. Sometimes there's some people put some things in there that aren't true, but others look at it and others add and others edit. And, and pretty soon they're, they're correcting, they're adding footnotes and all that. And, and then you have this Wikipedia, which is actually probably more accurate than the Encyclopedia Britannica, which I did like all my papers from like elementary into high school, probably into college, you know. It's probably even more accurate, and that's really what we have by all of these manuscripts coming together and showing us, you know, what God's Word is, and we can have authority and stand on God's Word. And so, there, that's it. That's the end of school. But I just want to put that out just to help us. If you kind of you see this, why is there a bracket? What's this mean? That's that. And if you're interested, we can talk more. Uh, certainly, we'd love to, to talk more, but that's probably enough for most of you. So, with that... What do we do with all this? Here's what I want us to do. When we look at this passage, here's what I want us to see. That, that Jesus does not come here to the world to judge and to bring judgment to the world. And that's not the model, the example that he sets for the church. Instead, he comes to bring grace and truth. And as he encounters people, he's encountering them with that. Not judgment, but with grace and truth. Here's two verses that I I want just to to bring this together, just to remind us of this. But in the beginning of John, when he's setting up his story, in John chapter 1, verse 17, he's talking about the word and how the word came. He says this in verse 17. He says, For the law was given through Moses. The law was given through Moses, right? The Old Testament law. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John wants us to know right at the very beginning that, that, yes, Moses gave us the law, but Jesus is coming to bring grace and truth. He tells us about himself even a little bit later in John chapter 3, that famous verse, John 3, 16, right? You guys remember it. You've heard it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then what he says, he says all out of love, but he says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. There's that word again, condemn, but to save the world. To save the world through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the God's one and only son. Why did Jesus come? Not to judge and condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already condemned. It already was judged. We were already guilty of of denying God. We were guilty of, of making up our own gods and worshiping ourselves and many other things. 
He did not have to condemn the world that already was condemned. Instead, he came to save the world. Instead, he came to take those who were condemned and offer them forgiveness, offer them love, offer them grace and truth. So that's why Jesus came. And if that's why he came, what should the church look like? Should the church be a place of condemnation and judgment? Or should it be a place of forgiveness and love and grace and truth? And that's what I want us to get to today. So that's what we'll see. And we're going to look at this. And we're just going to look at these two people, the Pharisees and the woman. And there's just two points today. That's it. It's One is judgment is easier than grace. But then we're going to look and see grace is more powerful than judgment. Okay, so let's look at those things. First, judgment is easier than grace. Judgment is just, it's very easy. There's rules to it. Why do we judge? Because you broke the rules. We know what the rules are, and you either abide by them or you break them, and then you're judged. And that's, it's very easy. And that's what the Pharisees want to do. They, they, they're bringing the judgment, okay, to them. So the, the Pharisees, you know, they're kind of, they're not first on the stage. They kind of enter in after verse 2. But here's the setup. Verse 2 is this. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Okay, so here's what's happening. It's early morning, it's dawn. So early, people got up at, in the dark. They kind of made their way over to the temple. They're going to worship probably before they go to work, that kind of thing. And there is Jesus. He's already there uh, hanging out at the temple, and he's teaching. And now the crowd appears and comes around him. And so that's, that's what's happening. So it's in the morning, kind of a morning Bible study, so to speak. But now it gets interesting. Okay, so now these Pharisees come in and they bring a woman and they place her before him. They kind of make her stand there. She doesn't want to. She kind of tries to get, you know, out of the limelight or get into the, the, the shadows, but they force her to stay in the middle. Here's what it says. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teach her. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But the spotlight is on Jesus. And it, I don't know about you, and in my mind I always pictured this, just the one woman standing there, the I don't know, a dozen or so Pharisees kind of around, but that was it. But really, remember, this is a crowd. There's a crowd of people watching. What is Jesus going to do? How is he going to respond to this question? I mean, it says it twice in here that this woman is guilty, right? She has no alibi, right? She's not, it's not like, oh, you guys misunderstood. That's my husband or whatever. Like, no, it's, she was guilty, but here's what's also interesting. She's alone. It's, uh, it's very hard in the very physical, real sense to commit adultery by yourself. Can't do it. It takes two, but he's not there. The guy's not there for whatever reason. And so I think that just kind of adds more credibility that this is just a manufactured trap, that these Pharisees are not so interested in, in really just getting to the, the purity in, in Jerusalem and seeing purity and righteousness flow. They're seeing they want Jesus gone, right? 
But they have this question, should we stone her or not stone her? Should we, th- and just to make sure y'all catch in, like this is throwing rocks at her until she's dead, right? Should we do that or not? And here's the tricky spot. What, what does Jesus say? I mean, he's kind of in a quandary. Like, if he says, yes, stone her, she is guilty then he is siding, you know, with, uh, with the Pharisees. He's no longer the friend of sinners. He's no longer there to offer uh, forgiveness and grace to the sinner. He's saying, no, I'm coming here to judge. She's guilty. She needs to be judged. Um, but the other problem is that, is that they probably would have done it. If he would have said stone her, they probably would have taken her out. They would have killed her. It would have got the attention of the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities said, you can't do that. No Jewish person can kill. Only the Romans can. Who told you to do this? And they would have all pointed to Jesus. Jesus would have been arrested, probably killed himself, and that would have been done. So he obviously can't say that. I feel like I'm on The Princess Bride. He obviously can't say that. But on the other side, right, if he says, no, don't, don't stone her, don't throw any rocks at her, well, now he's just, uh, he's just broken with the law. He's, he's a rabbi. He teaches this. Right? So now he's kind of broken with the, uh, the Judaism, the, the tradition and all that. And, and really what he's saying is like, you know, they do this all the time in Rome. There's no law in Rome, you know, for against this. It happens all the time. Don't worry about it. And he would be light on sin. And he would be siding with, with Rome. And that would, that would throw his credibility all off. People would stop listening to him. So he was stuck. But the law, it does demand this. I mean, Deuteronomy 22, 22. This is if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both, listen, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge evil from Israel. Remember, Israel's a theocracy. Like, there's no separation of church and state, you know? It's all together. Uh, a crime or, uh, a, yeah, the crime against the state is against the religion, and the crime against the religion is against the state. They're all mingled together. That's not how it is here, right? But that's how it was there. And under the Old Testament law, there's just a, a kind of a short list of reasons why someone would die, be stoned. And here's the reasons. For murder, okay, that makes sense, right? Then there's a few of these, like, religious things. For idolatry, worshiping idols. For the occult, practices of the occult for worshiping other gods, and child sacrifice to other gods, right? If someone did that, there was authority to stone the person. But there's also a couple others. Um, cursing mom and dad, Ooh, that's, that's, that's pretty serious. Um, and then a host of sexual sins from Leviticus 20. Uh, this and other kinds. These things are to be serious. Sexual sin is serious. But what Jesus says is it tells them is that it's also forgivable. That sexual sin is forgivable. They didn't want to see that. These men didn't, they weren't looking for forgiveness. They weren't looking to get people on the right track. They wanted judgment. These guys were uh, not interested in, in seeing real justice, like real godly justice, they, they wanted the results. They wanted this evil to be gone with. And they were trying to get, you know, uh, Jesus taken out with that as well. But when we look at this, like, I'm, I'm trying to think now, what does it look like today? 
Because we don't have Pharisees in our land, right? That's not a part of our culture. But what we do have is self-righteousness. We do have people that are self-righteous. Self-righteous can be defined different ways. A dictionary says confidence in one's own righteousness, especially when smugly moralistic and intolerant of opinions and behaviors of others. (laughs) Those are strong words, all right? Smugly moralistic and intolerant in the opinions and behaviors of others. But when in the Bible, it's, it talks about this in a little bit more like legalism. It's the idea that we can somehow generate within ourselves this righteousness that will be acceptable to God. Right? That either uh, just by my own righteousness that I will be right with God, okay? Or this idea of now that, you know, I have been saved, I've been forgiven, but now I am, I'm I'm trying really hard to get that extra credit, to get the, you know, God to pat me on the back, so to speak, because I'm, I'm really that good. I mean, that's where we see self-righteousness come out. And, and here's the thing. This is why it's hard. And here's what I'd say. All of us have this within us. All of us have moments where we are self-righteous, okay? It's not just one person or whatever, but we all do. And here's why this is difficult. Here's why it's hard. Because when you're saved, when you come to Christ, your discipleship leader or the person that brought you to Christ or whatever, they're going to say this. Okay, now you get to grow in your relationship. And here's how you grow. Okay, what do they say? Read the Bible. All right, let's pray. Spend some time praying, right? Um, uh, Give to the church, you know, find a church, connect, serve, give, you know, those kinds of things. Um, there's all kinds of other things that we, we keep doing. And, and in the, you know, the re- and it's right. I mean, those are the things. That's how we learn about God. That's how we abide with Christ, right? Seeing God's word and knowing who he is, spending time in prayer, um, just talking with him, abiding with him. I mean, those things are all right. But here's what happens. That we start off with like studying God's word, you know, maybe memorizing scripture and, um, you know, praying. And we do that to connect with God. But then we come to church or we go to a small group or accountability group or whatever it is. Or we talk to someone and we say, hey, I read my Bible today. And they, that's great. That's great. How many days in a row have you read? I've read five days in a row. That's wonderful. I've, I'm like on like, I don't know, I've stopped counting at 7,000 days in a row or whatever. I mean, I've been doing this for a year. I've never missed. You know, and then we, there's just this little switch of like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. And, and then, you know, we go back and said, hey, I've met 12 days in a row. And, and you know, we keep doing that. And, and pretty soon we've lost this connection. Like it's, it's not connected us with God so much as it's like we're proving to others. Here's how good I am. Here's what I'm doing. And that happens in prayer, happens in giving, you know, like, hey, I, I finally started tithing to the church, you know, I started giving some funds. Oh, that's good. How much percentage? Oh, just 3%. Oh, 3%'s good, but, you know, I give 10%. You know, actually, I give more than that, but, you know, I've been a Christian longer than you, you know, but, you know, tell me when you get to 10% and we'll, you know, talk. I mean, you see what I'm saying? Like, th- these things just kind of happen, and if we're not careful, we get caught into these things, and we pretty soon we start doing it to others to get other people's uh, approval. You know, watch me serve, watch me do all this kind of stuff, and, and we forget the connection with God. And so throughout our lives, we do this. We're just back and forth, like, oh, self-righteous, and now back in, in understanding righteousness and, and all that. And so it's important for us 
as a church, to be aware of these things, right? That this is not the behavior that God wants. It doesn't give us any extra righteousness in God or with other people. That's how we lean. Um, Part of this mentality, too, here's what's also hard, is that we see things like some sins are like really big sins, like capital S sins, and some sins are kind of like small, you know, smaller S sins. And we you know, kind of have these, and it, like this, like, um, you know, I don't, I don't have that many sins. I mean, my, my greatest sin is like I cuss a little bit. And, and when I cuss, I use the word damn, because that can be a noun, you know, talking about like water, and you know, or, or you know, so it's kind of like, it's a little thing, but, but you're, you're addicted to pornography, you know, like, you know, that's, that's a ser- that's way serious, you know, or like, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I sin, I, I mean, I, I have a hard time controlling my anger, you know, or I, I gossip, you know, but, but you're, you're sexually active, you're having an affair, or whatever it is, right, I mean, just throw it out there, like, we, we have these like, well, these are like small, lowercase s, but there are big ones. But you guys, sin is sin. And that's the deceptive part, that the self-righteous person kind of sees their sins as less and other people's as more. So, and it, you know, when, when the pastor says, hey, take the next three minutes and just, you know, confess your sins, the self-righteous person is like, I, I only need about 12 seconds, you know? I got like two things I got to confess, but I'll use the rest of the time praying for the people around me, you know, praying for them. Um, or, um, you know, you're, you're more annoyed at other people, you know, coming in late. They come in late to church with a Starbucks, and you're just like, oh, I can't, Paul, you, you, you're, you know, coffee's your idol. You came late to church. You're more annoyed with them, but that your own heart, that you didn't prepare your heart or anything like that. And so, this is the point is, is that in the church, we, this is something we struggle with. It happens in probably every church, every congregation. But we've got to fight those things. Those are the sins too. Those are the major sins that we, we cannot overlook. We've got to let God work in our hearts to clean these things up. And that's really the, the issue with these Pharisees. That was their issue. Now let me just, before I go on, let me just hit this last thing too about judgment. Okay? Um, can we judge each other? What, can a Christian judge? Like, what's, what's that? You, you got two sides. You got the one side that says, no, 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 we don't judge anyone because God said that. He said, Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. So we're not going to do that. But we have others that say, yeah, we should judge. We do. We have to protect the holiness. You know, we have to protect, you know, that, the, the, the heart of God in the church. And so we do need to judge each other. Um, You've probably heard that. What do you do? What do we do? I'd say here, just a, a quick one, but um, one, we don't judge outside the church. That's, that's not our domain, okay? Um, we know that there's all kinds of flagrant sin happening all over. Um, you go out the doors, you see it all over. That, listen, that's not our, our place, Okay? Um, we know they are not conformed to the image of Christ. They are not following him. We're going to leave that alone. We're also going to leave alone, you know, people like at the other church, you know, the other people, the Christians that, you know, whatever. Listen, we don't know what's going on and all that, so we're just going to leave that aside, all right? But what about here in our church? 
Jesus does mention this in Matthew chapter 7, in that verse. He says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. But then he says this. He says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, that measure will be used on you. All right, so he kind of almost like opens the door like, okay, so you can judge, but just be careful how you do it. And then he gives this great illustration, one of the best in the Bible. I love it. Do you remember what he says? He says, so you're looking at your friend and they have a little speck of sawdust in their eye. And you want to take that out. But you have a two by four. You have a tree trunk in your eye. You know, you can't do it. I remember when I was in 12th grade, I was working construction, and uh, I remember getting some sawdust in my eye, and it hurt. I was like way back there, you know, and we tried all the stuff, and, and I couldn't get it out, and so one of our friends at the church was an optometrist, and we called him, and he went to his office late and opened it up and took it in there, and I sat in the chair, and, and um, I let him take out that sawdust, and it felt so good, but you know what? He didn't have you know, he wasn't like wearing like, you know, a two by four like sunglasses. He didn't have this tree trunk in there or else I would have said, get that out of here. You're not touching my eye with that. You can't see. I wouldn't let him do that. But we do this kind of thing all the time. But here's what Jesus says. Like before you go trying to get that little small piece of sawdust out of someone's eye, let them help you. Just say, listen. I have this like two by four. I have a plank. I have a tree in my eye. I need you to help me. Can you get this thing out? And that person helps and then they help and they get it out. And oh, that feels so much better. I can finally see. And then like, hey, can I help you? I noticed there's a little speck. Can I? Oh, yes, please. That's been bothering me. You know, this is mutually helping each other. I wouldn't call that judging. I would spur each other on, helping each other. Put whatever word you use, but I, that's the idea. So this whole idea is, is we get face-to-face -face with each other. We're helping each other out, work through our stuff. We both want to become like Christ. We both want to be sanctified. We both want to keep growing in our faith, so we're going to help each other. And that's very different than the person that stands up here and just pointing down and says, you got sin. You need to get rid of that. That's the judgmental stuff. That's what we're not looking at. But to get in relationship, to help each other with our shortcomings, that's a totally different thing. And so when I look at this passage, when I look at these Pharisees, that's not what they were looking for. They didn't want to grow and to learn and to come together. They just wanted to judge because that's easier. And what should have happened is they should have come to Jesus and said, hey, I realize I got some issues. Can you help me work these things out? They should have come to Jesus, but instead they walked away. So they didn't want to be confronted with that. Judgment's easier than grace. But let's go to the next part. Grace is more powerful than judgment. Grace is more powerful than judgment. Jesus shows grace in just a... He shows it to this lady, and it's, it's almost uncomfortable for some of us, right? We're used to the judgment side. And so this lady, he has this interaction with her, and he just forgives her. And he just says, you're forgiven. She didn't ask for it. And we don't know what happened afterwards. She didn't, we don't know if she 
you know, kind of followed, changed her life or whatever. It's just a little bit uncomfortable. We don't know. Because grace has less rules. It's undefined. It's a little sloppy or messy. It's for those who don't deserve it. It's taking a chance on people. Very different than the rules of justice, the rules of judging. It says, but Moses was about the law. Jesus is about grace. And we see that. We see that here. So here's what happens. We'll pick up in verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he st- stood up. Remember, he, he, they come, they ask a question. Remember, he gets down on the ground. He just kind of starts writing. He, he takes a second. He takes a breather. Right? He's not going to give a, they want a reaction. He doesn't give a reaction. He takes a minute. He draws on the ground. But they kept on asking. They kept on questioning him. There was not silence. There was like, come on, Jesus, what's the answer? What are you going to say? Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, Why are, where are they? Has no one here to condemn you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, now go and leave your life of sin. Crazy story. Like, I don't know how long it took. I don't know how long he was doodling. And by the way, we don't know what he was writing. We have no idea. This was funny, though. Jesus didn't, he didn't write any books, right? We don't have any letters that are like, this is from Jesus. He didn't write anything. This is the only place where we see him writing, and we don't know what it is. Someday in heaven, on ask, right? We'll find out. Maybe it won't matter. But whatever he did, he was writing. I think it was something intentional. But pretty soon, they get the picture, and they start leaving. They walk away, until only this lady, and remember the crowd that's there watching, they're on pins and needles like, what's going to happen here? But he says, where are they? Where are they? Is there anyone here to condemn you? And she said, no, they're, they're all gone. Which wasn't true. Because Jesus was still there. And Jesus could have condemned her. Remember what he said? The one who is without sin can throw the first stone. Jesus was without sin. He was there. He could have thrown the stone. He could have said, hey, let me stop you right there. Um, actually, I'm here, and um, I, I have the authority to throw the stone at you. And he could have said, hey, um, you know, I've come here to judge the world, and we're going to start with you. We're going we're gonna to set an example here, so come out, you know, outside of the end of the city, and we're going to throw stones at you. We're going to kill you because I've come to judge the world. But that's not what he came for, right? That's what John told us. I didn't come to condemn the world. I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world, and I'm saving it with what? Grace and truth. And it's what he shows her. He says, well, I don't condemn you either. That's grace. He offers grace. Like I said, she didn't ask for it. 
She didn't say, hey, can I, uh, can I get some, some grace here? He gave it. He gave it freely. But there was something that was condemned, and that was a sin, right? Because he says, he, he gave grace, and then he gave the truth, right? He says, now I want you to leave that life of sin, and don't go back. Leave that, and go on your way. I mean, in many ways, Jesus was the one who was having the, throne, the stones thrown at him. He was the one condemned because he took the sin. He took it on himself, and he was condemned to death on the cross so that we could go free. But here the, here's the order of that, and this is really important. When John talks about the order, he always says grace and truth. And that's what we see. I don't condemn you. Now go and leave the sin. Follow a righteous life. If he came with truth and grace, and maybe we think that's not a big deal, but it would have looked different. He would have said, is there anyone here to condemn you? She would say, no. And he would say, here's what's going to happen. you got to leave that life of sin. Leave it. Promise me. Are you going to leave that life of sin? And if she said, yes, okay, then I don't condemn you either. I'm not going to condemn you either. That's truth and then grace, which is good. That's a good thing. But it's not what he gives. He gives grace and then truth. I'm going to give you grace. I don't condemn you either. But the way you're living is not consistent with what I'm asking. See, we talked about self-righteousness. but Righteousness is, there's no one righteous, no one but God. But how do we become righteous? We, we confess our sins. We said, I'm condemned. Whatever word you want to use, right? Father, please take my sins. And he takes those sins, nails them to the cross. He gives us Christ's righteousness. So now we're righteous. We are 100% righteous. On day one, you're 100% righteous. God has loved you. He's cared for you. He's saved you. He's, everything is done. But now we... Walk in the footsteps of Christ. Not in order to get little brownie points, anything like that. It's because we want to resemble Christ. We want to look like him. And so we do study our word to know, like, who is this Jesus? And how does he live? And how does he treat people? I want to treat people the same way. He treats people with grace and truth. I want to do the same thing. And so we read and we follow and we conform our lives. I mean, the whole I thing of discipleship is we're, we're becoming followers of Christ. We want to look like him and follow him. Again, not for self-righteous reasons, but because we're already made righteous. The gospel. This world is full of condemnation. And we love condemning people. But the church is not to be that way. And followers of Christ are not to be that way. The world is already condemned. The world is going to know that. We know that. We know how to judge and be judgy and all that kind of stuff. Friends, in the church, particularly here, Ambassador Church, all of us here, may we seek to follow Jesus. May we live out the righteous lifestyle that Christ has saved you. He's loved you. 
May we get to know him. May we love him and sit with him. May we reflect him. Moses came with the law. Jesus came with grace and truth. Let us practice that out. What does it look like for us to be men and women, young adults, older adults, of grace and truth? who are giving that to each other, helping each other become more like Christ, helping each other with our, with our sin, with our issues, but we do it with humility, we do it with love, we do it with grace and mercy. Like, that's, to me, an exciting place. And the, church, the, the world doesn't see that, but let us begin, and we'll show that little by little to the people in our lives. So what does that mean for you? Um, in this situation, you know, a, she was caught in adultery, and that's a serious thing, but it's forgivable. God can forgive that. He's giving us grace, right? The other side, though, self-righteousness. So that's a serious thing, too, but that also is forgivable. My call to you is walk in the footsteps of the lady, not in the footsteps of the Pharisees, because they walked away from Jesus, and she stayed. And in doing so, she received that grace. May we receive God's grace, too. Heavenly Father, would you watch over us?